Welcome to the Brown County Hour. Coming to you from the legendary hills of Brown. Where the plum purple haze, the one nature herself drapes in the hills and hollers, inspires local characters, artists, and nature lovers. It's as though the hills themselves conspire to create a beauty and a culture in the heart of Indiana. Sit for a spell and hear the music, the tall tales, the true stories, and the current goings-on. Brought to you by folks who still know how to sit by a fire in winter and swim buck naked in the summer. Welcome to Episode 5 of the Brown County Hour, our Earth Day show. I'm your host, Keith Kelly. Before we begin, we want to mention our good friend and co-worker, Jeff Quick, who we lost on March 24, 2011. All of us at the Brown County Hour Project are deeply saddened and still shocked by his death. Jeff was a hard-working, can-do friend upon whom we all leaned. He loved our radio project, knew we were capable of great and wonderful things, and he had many ideas for future shows. What seemed easy to Jeff, being an IT specialist by trade, we struggled to learn, but gradually gained some of his know-how and confidence. It will be hard to replace him, and yet we know he would want our project to go forward. And so, the Brown County Hour dedicates this episode to our friend Jeff Quick, who before leaving us had a hand in its making. Jeff, if you can hear us, may you and your family know peace and that you will not be forgotten hereabouts. One of our correspondents interviews members of Native American tribes who inhabited Indiana when the white man came. I'm Susan Showalter with Brown County Hour and talking with Kevin and Janine Johnson, Native Americans. Where are you from originally? Originally, I'm from Mayetta, Kansas. I'm from Kevin. Fort Wayne, Indiana. I'm a Prairie Band Potawatomi. And I'm from the Miami people, Indiana here. Well, this is our special Earth Day show. Share with us some of the ways you think that Native Americans celebrate Mother Earth. Native Americans basically don't think of themselves as different than or we all look around and we see the trees and we consider the trees a part of the earth and we see the animals and we know that the animals are a part of the earth and we look at ourselves and we consider ourselves a part of the earth we don't consider ourselves above or more than just a normal part of the earth everything is connected everything that was created has the spirit of the creator in it whether it's the trees or the animals the rocks themselves everything. That means everything and all of us, everybody are connected. So celebrating earth, celebrating life in my way, I say thank you on the earth and with the things that we get from the earth. Everything depends on everything else. This interdependence that we all have on each other gives us sort of a reverence then for everything and everybody. And we've talked some a little bit before we started the interview about sweat lodges. Can you tell us what's the purpose? Everybody who sweats actually will do it a specific 
way, depending on the tribe that they're from or the people that they learn from. In our home, we sweat in a very specific manner. Basically, it is used as a purification. Here we get to a place where we follow a whole different way of life, and that is the Lakota way, seven rites of the sacred pipe. One of the seven sacred rites is the purification ceremony. That is to purify not just your body, but also your spirit. And it's basically a time for prayer. It is a time for prayer while you're purifying. Our house, when there's a need, we all get together and pray. And we do that in the sweat lots. There's, there's protocol involved. And it can involve two or three people, or it can involve 20 to 30 people. It's a sacred right. What other ways do you feel you honor the earth as your mother? We do consider the earth as her own spirit. You have a spirit, I have a spirit, each animal has a spirit, each tree has a spirit, but we consider the earth herself her own spirit. And in that respect, we honor her as an individual. We try to only take what we need to replace what we can replace. In my house, I'm big on recycling. We are traditional native people in a lot of ways, but we're also very modern. So we have to really think about it just like everybody else. Mm -hmm. You know, how, how do I live in better balance with the spirit that resides with this planet? A lot has gone on for quite a long time. Damage. And we're looking at some really big damage right now. The natural occurrences of damage cannot be helped or stopped. But when you intentionally take natural materials and then enhance them, take them out of their natural state by enhancing them or changing them. Man meddles and gets in there and starts mixing things up. Then we have these unnatural catastrophes. We've abused this planet, but the grandmother, Earth, is big enough and strong enough to take care of herself. One of these days, grandmother's just going to shrug and we will be like fleas on a dog when she does. And she will straighten herself out along with everything and everybody else. And that's what I believe. How do you feel about other natural forms of harnessing energy like solar power and wind? You've got those wind turbines. So the worst thing that can happen with that maybe is it falls over or the propeller blades come off. Solar energy, your panels might crack, break, or this or that. But for the next 25,000 years, you're not going to glow in the dark because of an act. Solar power is fine. Wind power is fine. Water power all these things are of the natural, and so are the ingredients that go into these nuclear plants, but they've been rearranged and enhanced or changed, yeah. which isn't natural. What would you like to see people consider in the future to preserve Mother Nature and Mother Earth? Pray strong. Yeah, and, and, I, and I would say just always remember to, to live in balance. I mean, it's it's hard to do. And I have a Blackberry. I have two computers at my home. I have, you know, fluorescent lights in my house. But but when you can just live in as much balance with the earth, with the natural rhythms of the earth as you can, and you are actually doing your very best to live in harmony with the earth. Okay. And I think we will all go further and succeed as a, a race. Being responsible. And not just taking responsibility and just taking care of yourself, but think about other people. This is Susan Showalter for the Brown County Hour and WFHB Radio. Thank you. Julia Pearson, Museum Director of the Brown County Historical Society, explains some differences between now and then. The earth where we walk, breathe, live, work, and play is often forgotten until she reminds us in wonderful, awesome, 
and yes, scary ways. She shakes us and she reminds us that we are guests. We are tourists here for a short time. Yeah, even though we call ourselves natives and citizens and landowners, we seldom or never know what is underneath, all around, up or down, anywhere, wherever we look, where our mother is, Mother Earth. What are the differences between then and now in how we, our Native American brothers and sisters, the pioneers before us, and the conservationists today, how we think and talk about the earth. How did these four groups of people who have called Brown County home view the earth? The Shawnee and Pawnee would never have thought of owning the earth. Leave not a trace of yourselves as you go about the earth is not covering your tracks, but it is a mutual respect between us and our mother. Maybe even a fear of the Creator, called Kishihiwa. The Shawnee experienced nuts and berries as small gifts here and there, and they remembered Mother Earth when they planted the three sisters, corn, beans, and squash. The sounds of the earth in a Native American flute sums it up. On many Saturdays, our forefathers took a trip to town to get supplies, to go to an auction, to watch fiddlers and dancers, and stomp a bit themselves when night came. The James H. Madison Indiana University history professor wrote in a 1966 bulletin. He said, They did not want to be pioneers. They wanted to become something else, to move beyond that stage. They wanted to live in frame houses, not drafty and damp log cabins. They wanted a cook stove, not a fireplace. They wanted store-bought nails, coffee, sugar, cloth, and on and on and on. But the pioneers saw land, the earth, differently. It was their wealth. They were a people who had different tools, ways of viewing the land that led to consequences both brilliant and destructive, which we live with today and which will linger after us. They lived in the wilderness and most sought to tame it instead of partnering with it. Today, we compare prices of food, earth products, and wonder if it's safe, safe from chemicals, safe from radiation. How much can you trust the person who grows your food? We have to check on things because we have not grown it ourselves. We have become removed from the very source of all that is. Sometimes Mother Nature seems not to do us right. And Slats wrote about that, too. How the sun beats down, blazing on my neck. No water to be found. Except in what I swear And I ask you, friend Can I do the same? In a hot, dry spell May I dip your well When the sky won't rain Well, neighbor, 
That's why there is a Brown County. When the well runs dry in the city or wherever you are from, come on down, feel the breezes, watch the sun rise or set, get close to the source again. Remember where you come from. And remember when mama ain't happy, ain't nobody's happy. And that is Mother Earth. At the Brown County History Center, we've learned to partner with the Earth and learning about the tribes that set up camps here as they went through on their hunts. We learned from the pioneers what they got right and some things they got wrong and hope we don't repeat it. All the while, we're singing songs and dancing, sometimes square dancing, and other times just kicking up our heels or letting our fingers dance as they tap on the kitchen table. Come see us at the Pioneer Village Museum or at the Traditional Arts Building and make peace with Mother Earth. In our music segment, Rick Fettig talks to Deborah and Jonathan Hutchison. Hello, this is Rick Fettig, and I'm with the Brown County Hour, and, and I'm here with Deborah and Jonathan Hutchinson. Okay, well, you have a song called Mountain Meadow. You want to tell us anything about that? It was written quite a long time ago when Deborah and I first were together, and we were living in New Mexico. It's a, a wonderful place to experience the wonders of creation, and uh, we thought we'd go experience some wonders of creation by taking a little camping trip up Hot Peekeris Peak, and uh, we drove up there with an old van and left part of the muffler assembly on the logging road. That led to a beautiful mountain meadow. We had a loaf of bread, a jug of wine, and two of us to enjoy the sunset over the over the Rio Grande Valley. And it was all very romantic. We had our sleeping bags all ready to sleep out under the stars. That's when we discovered another wonder of nature, which is the giant New Mexico mountain mosquito. <laughs> and we, we ended up in It the, forced us into separate sleeping bags. Uh-huh. We ended up in sli- separate sleeping bags, slip, zipped over our heads in the van. The duty of any songwriter under those circumstances is to try to redeem the experience. the color of the sky Warm as the aspen leaves that serenade the night chanting their song Too deep in the blue and summon all the stars above to shine As love shines in your eyes Fresh as the air and just as rare Clean as the fragrant scent of pine Flowing in the evening wind The sweet breath of life Flowing through the trees to you and me As you breathe in my Standing in one 
are small as every blade of grass Strong as the rock on which we stand Deeply buried in the ground To rise up once more And brave the scorching sun And freeze in night And all that comes to pass Deeply buried in the ground To rise up once more And brave the scorching sun And freeze in night Another correspondent interviewed a couple participants in this year's local Earth Day event. Hi, this is Denise Pierce for the Brown County Hour. With the Nashville Earth Day event coming up, being a newbie, I decided to take a step into our country's recent history to look at the beginnings of Earth Day, which started April 22, 1970, 41 years ago. I found out that the late Wisconsin Senator Gaylord Nelson, who was an environmental activist, among other things, is considered the father of Earth Day. He was a World War II veteran, served in the Wisconsin State Senate, and as a state governor before being elected to U.S. Senate in 1962, the same year he began working on his idea for Earth Day. In 1963, he accompanied President John F. Kennedy on a speaking tour around the U.S. to raise awareness about environmental issues. In 1969, after a couple major environmental disasters, Senator Gaylord Nelson, inspired by Vietnam War protesters, announced his idea for a national teach-in on the environment. April 22, 1970, 20 million people demonstrated for a healthy, sustainable environment in massive coast-to-coast rallies. Groups that had been opposing the various degradations of America's natural resources suddenly realized they shared common values and goals. Earth Day 1970 achieved an alignment among previously polarized political factions. It is now celebrated in more than 175 countries around the world every year, and many cities extend the observance of Earth Day to an entire week. In 2009, the United Nations designated April 22nd International Mother Earth Day. Earth Day events were started in Indiana in 1970 as well, although predominantly in colleges until the late 1980s when a particularly hot summer apparently produced serious air pollution problems and the interest in environmental concerns expanded out into a wider Indiana community. Jeff Keller talks about birds of the hill country, Baltimore Oriole.
Baltimore Orioles are very impressive-looking birds, orange and black. It's a, it's a magnificent bird to see, but it's also a magnificent bird to hear, although most people are probably not familiar with the sound of a Baltimore Oriole. It's rather hard to describe, but one could say that the quality of their song is very human-like, which I mean by that, that if a human was really good at whistling, you could imitate a Baltimore Oriole very easily because the frequency of the Baltimore Oriole song is about the same frequency as human whistling. And now, station identification. Hi, I'm Pam Rader. I'm here with Kathy Paradise from Soil and Water. Hi, Pam. And I'm here with Bonnie Closey from our local recycling center. Hi, Pam. Kathy, what does Soil and Water do? Our main focus is to provide information about natural resources to identify and prioritize local soil and water conservation issues and concerns. We like to be able to connect land users with educational and financial, along with technical resources to help them implement conservation practices on their land. Soil and water got started after the Great Dust Bowl. The Brown County Soil and Water Conservation District actually was started in 1953. Every county has a soil and water conservation district. What services do you provide the average homeowner? It varies based on the topography of each county. In Brown County, we're forested, so we actually spend a lot of time on erosion, runoff problems, drainage problems. Certainly, we have a lot of soil erosion, and we have a lot of subsoil where we used to have top soil. So the average homeowner could call you and depending on their particular issue get help. Absolutely. We can't always provide financial assistance but we can often tell them where to go to get financial assistance. And does your organization help with cleaning up our waterways? We don't especially clean the waterways as like in log jams. What we want to try to do is keep sediment and chemicals out of the water and E. coli and the things that actually pollute the water. So how would a person get a hold of Our telephone number is 812-988-2211. Our website is www.browncountyswcd.com. We have recently moved with Brown County Extension to the lower level of the Veterans Building in Deer Run Park. Bonnie, I know your official title of your organization is Brown County Solid Waste District. (laughs) But we all know it as a recycle center. Right. I'm wondering, what is the total tonnage of recycled materials in Brown County. In the year 2010, we did 621 tons of recyclables. Wow. 
So is this up or down from past years? It goes up and down. It fluctuates. We're losing newspaper because people are going digital or internet. The biggest one is plastic has gone up. And also we're seeing a change in aluminum cans because more products are being put in glass or plastic. Or glass is going up, plastic's going up. And where does this stuff go once we drop it off? We deal with a vendor who is our broker and we sell the product to them. And then they also then in turn sell it to a vendor that needs feedstock to make whatever they're manufacturing. So it really is recycled. Yes. So I do check that out to make sure ours is going into the recycling vein. I know we can recycle ones and twos on the plastic. What about those other numbers? Brown County is unique. We're a small community, so it takes lots of storage area to save up all those five, sevens, and things before we can ship it out. So you have days that you recycle special items. We help people on the big items. We have been doing appliance days, scrap metal and appliance days. That's four times a year, and there's no cost to the resident. Also, we've been doing tire amnesty days, which we are continuing. As people know, tires seem to grow along the highway. So we're doing that. And also people that have them can have a way of disposing of them. So we do that once a year. Two new things that we are starting. Last year, we started a document shredding to help people with a place to take their documents because of the identity theft. For the first time, we're doing electronics waste, which is computers, TVs, anything that's electronic or what they say have as a cord with it on April 30th during Earth Day. Medicines. Last year, we hooked up with the DEA to take back medicines because we don't want people to flush it down the toilet any longer. We want to have a place for them to take it with no questions asked, and then we can dispose of it properly. And that's on April April 30th. Both of your organizations are part of a local Earth Day, April 30th. Earth Day will be held at the Recycling Center at 8 o'clock in the morning, and those programs will go through 2 o'clock. At the YMCA, there are going to be a lot of different booths, speakers, and activities. At the YMCA, it will be going on from 10 o'clock until 4 o'clock. Jeff Keller talks about birds of the hill country, cerulean warbler. Well, the cerulean warbler is probably not a species that is going to be familiar with most of the listeners of, of the program. However, it is definitely a bird that puts the hill country on the map. The reason that the cerulean warbler is a bird of notoriety in the hill country is because their numbers are in severe decline throughout much of its former range in eastern United States. Basically, the reason the hill country has a strong, viable population of cerulean warblers is because we have a large, contiguous, intact forest canopy, which is absolutely essential for this particular species. So, what does a cerulean warbler look like? It's basically three colors, white, black, and sky blue. These birds are even with those bright colors. They can be very difficult to identify because they are only about four to four and a half inches in length, and they will be singing from the top of tall sycamore trees or white oak trees high in the canopy. And it would take a fair amount of practice to learn the song, but once you do learn the song of a cerulean warbler, you would soon realize that it is indeed a common species in the hill country. The song of a cerulean warbler is rather buzzy, it's rather quick, 
and there is a mnemonic for this particular song, and a mnemonic is a, a learning device that birders use to help them learn a bird song. They try and put words to what the bird sounds like they're saying. In the case of a cerulean warbler, it sounds as though the bird is saying, zray, 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 zray. Here's another facet to Earth Day, living off the grid. I'm Pam Rader with the Brown County Hour. I'm here with my friend Bruce Clegg. Well, howdy, Pam. I remember when you built your house mm-hmm. out of all recycled <laughs> materials mm-hmm. and with hand tools. We had, first we'd moved uh, up on 10 acres of Brown County and no work and uh, no money and started with six railroad ties and some used lumber that I got from Atterbury. We took the old Atterbury barracks down. They auctioned them off and for 300 bucks you could buy half of an army barracks. So we did that and use the lumber. That's what we did every day, you know, build the house. And your house started small and then you gradually added to it. I had a baby that helped the expansion. The goal was to, uh, I think, finish the house by the time he graduated from high school. <laughs> so. The other thing was that you've lived off the electric grid for some 30 years mm-hmm. now. It was just something that I'd always wanted to do and um, the self-sufficiency. I, I sort of had two books, the Foxfire books and the, and the uh, Mother earth news or the solar you know alternative energy books and i admired both the new technologies and then the foxfire with the self-sufficiency of people in appalachia was always pretty interesting so i kind of figured between the two how to be able to make a house and then have solar power and and power the house and everything with alternative energy so we just never hooked on to the power grid and it's definitely a lifestyle change you know we uh i never really wanted to be inside much you know today you know if the sun's shining i don't really want to watch a movie or so that that was a big part of uh, what you give up, I guess, with all the electronic stuff or the easy part of life. We don't have any gadgets. I kind of looked at my grandmother, never had a refrigerator or microwave. I thought she had a pretty full life, and so I thought, well, I don't need all that stuff. So really. what happens when you have several cloudy days? Uh, you might run low on power. <laughs> and in the real sunny days, you know, you might have too much power, tend to overcharge the batteries. Is that a problem? Yeah, well, it can be. You have, because we have... You you know, four seasons or two extreme seasons, it's hard to come up with a system that, that's going to run efficiently through the winter months and the summer months. You undercharge in the winter and tend to overcharge in the summer, so you have to try to regulate. I have a windmill with, uh-huh. that we put up. and So what's been your biggest challenge living off the grid, just doing with less? I don't know, because that's, the, that's only if you compare our lifestyle, I guess, to somebody else's, mm-hmm. that you, we would notice that we didn't have the other things. Since we don't have them, we don't notice that we don't have them. <laughs> I think our, our lifestyle is, is pretty similar to normal people, you know, coming home and having supper and watching a little TV and watch a movie. And our TV's so much smaller than uh, everybody else's TV. And we like music a lot. Donna plays music, and, and so we like to listen to music a lot. So we always got the CD player going or a video. We like to do a lot of things outside. You know, we have chickens and some pets, and, um, and I like to work on old motorcycles and ride motorcycles and, and uh, old vintage cars and 
we're always busy, you know, there's no time. You don't have enough time to do everything. <laughs> so you're a builder by trade now. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Do you find many other people who want to try to have a green lifestyle? We do have uh, several people in the county that are living off the grid. A lot mm-hmm. of them are so far away from the power company that they've they've uh, had no real choice. You know, some big elaborate systems in the county and some pretty small like mine, you know, pretty modest systems. Definitely when the price of uh, energy starts going way up, then people start asking. How long does a solar panel last? I don't know. They power, um, I think, all the most of the satellites, you know, up in space and so on. And they're, they're you know, basically made of crystal or glass and, and metal, you know, grid. So there's really nothing to wear out. There's no moving parts to them. Mine have been uh, 30 years, and I've got some that's probably 35 years old. And don't they have weakened some, but they've quit or anything. I mean, they're still putting out power. So I don't think there's they don't really uh, fail. Would you recommend this lifestyle to anyone else? I think that at least to uh, explore the possibility, as, uh, as in uh, starting out small and modest, powering a shed, a garage, a, a barn, or something that's sort of mm-hmm. an outbuilding by itself that you could set up your own little project and power the chicken house kind of thing, you know, and get a feel for it. That way you may appreciate when you went to the barn or whatever and um, that when you turn the lights on and, and do things that that solely comes from the sun's energy the day before and there's no fossil fuels burning or anything you're just it's what the sun provided so it's kind of a neat feeling here's a poem by deborah hutchison this was written last autumn when we were still deep in drought here in Indiana, and we, we have a connection here with a beautiful place, and we also have a connection with a very beautiful place in um, the wilderness of north-central Pennsylvania. At the same time that we were worrying about the lack of rain here, we were also worrying about the natural gas rush, which is on in that part of the country, the Marcellus Shale bed that underlies that whole part of, of Pennsylvania, actually the east, the northeast, is as natural gas trapped in it and the only way to get it out is through uh, fracking. That's threatening this area that we love so much in Pennsylvania and I just felt overwhelmed by my lack of control and power in the face of of both of those situations and somehow that got filtered through my favorite fairy tale. This poem is called Climate Change, Human Greed and the Twelve Dancing Princesses. Things fall apart, the center cannot hold. W.B. Yeats, The Second Coming. Up here on the mountain, a retreat as lovely as a fairy tale. Water runs like spring freshets, turns trails into unseasonable rivers. Among autumn's cinnamon-colored fern, eight inches of rain in one day last week, rushing off the mountain, uprooting trees, re-inscribing stream beds. No one can remember such a deluge. We read, write, work crosswords, while more rain falls in cascades of red leaves, great gusts roar, whipping treetops, building to unbearable crescendos, too much like labor pains. No one can remember such a wind. Back home in the heartland, it hasn't rained for three months. Leaves curl, turn brown, fall rattling onto powdery dirt. Everything is just this side of bursting into flames. No one can remember such a drought. The idea of water falling from that heartless blue sky seems as impossible as the subterranean realms of story, the avenues of silver, gold, and jewel-leaf trees, the dark lake reflecting a palace ballroom's blazing lights, while princesses dance their shoes to shreds 
night after night, at the bottom of the stairs, beneath the eldest sister's bed. Beneath our mountain, the bed is shale, dense, black as the lake below the princess's bedroom. The fossil fuel it holds, the treasure in this tale. Arrayed like siege engines on the borders of our enchanted forest, exploratory wells drilled deep, caustic chemicals fracture rock, ruin water. Roughnecks labor 24-7 under banks of glaring lights. A mad dance, spinning, spinning, wearing down what's left. There used to be nothing between us and the stars, only the lacy grace of hemlocks. Now they too are under siege. Insects from the other side of the world eating their way northward through warming winters, grove after grove after grove. If these were the trees in the story, their jeweled and gold and silver leaves would have made them uninteresting to bugs. But if these were the trees in the story, we would have already cut them down to get their treasure. And still, it storms. Looking up from the puzzle, I see her step out from dim woods with their mists and waving branches. The old woman from the fairy tale, the crone who gives the magic cloak and warns against drinking the drugged wine that's been the undoing of so many suitors. There was a time I would have been the youngest princess with her plaguing fears, or the oldest who refuses to listen, or any of the remaining ten who think turning and turning until their satin slippers wear right through is enough. I'm tired of dancing underground. I choose to be the aging soldier, unlikely hero, war-weary, having made peace with wounds, done with destruction, no longer surprised by anything, the one who pays attention and does not lose his head, or maybe the crone. The story hangs on what she knows, and she decides who will be king. Here's another piece of music from Deborah and Jonathan Hutchison. on a stone flowing life filling every blessed cell of every creature here below not just in me alone quenching deep the waiting soil the thirsty bud the part soul and laughing brooks Their voices join To carve the rock Make rivers
the sound of rain Soft upon a quiet lake Rising, falling with the wind Earth's own whispered prayer Awakens me Beats upon my window pane And rattles in my chimney Makes me believe in something there When I am still I can just hear The song of rivers underground And like the flood beneath our skin The sacred pulse that holy The sound of rain. And now, station identification. Here's an interview with Native American artist Marty Gradolf. This is Vera Grubbs for WFHB at the studios of the Brown County Hour in Nashville. And I have with me this morning Martha Gradolf. I am aware that Brown County has had a number of excellent fiber artists. What is your training in this art form and what inspires you to create the visual woven pieces? Well, my training is varied. Uh, started uh, many, many years ago when our sons were babies and I wanted to stay home. So we bought a little loom and I took a class. I just started from there, attended various workshops, uh, some college classes here and there. It's still an ongoing learning process. Well, I imagine your inspiration has changed from time to time. Oh, sure. When I started, I was weaving functional items, rugs and wall hanging, table runners and scarves and things like that and it has evolved when I began doing Indian markets about 12 or 15 years ago. I realized I had a, a voice in my weaving and my work and a legacy I could leave to my kids. So it has changed although I will still weave functional rugs and clothing. My signature style is, is wall hangings, statement pieces, topical pieces. Some of my pieces, the signature style, I am Indian. I'm Winnebago of the Nebraska tribe and I draw on native of issues, current and past. I want to highlight the beauty and bring out some truthfulness issues between the government and Indian people. I was surprised to have you use the term Indian. 
Is it politically correct to say Native American, or would people like to use Indian again? I've heard people say Native American Indian. I, I say everything. I say Native. I say Indian. Um, I, I don't think that for me and my realm of friends, there's any particular correctness to that. So I know people will disagree with me. Where else have you shown your work? Well, I do the Indian markets in starting at the beginning of each year, the one at the Herd Museum. That's in Phoenix. I've won awards at all the shows. The Idol Jorg in Indianapolis, Indiana at the Idol Jorg Museum. The these are all Indian markets. I do the Santa Fe, which is the oldest Indian market in the country and in New Mexico. I've done Oklahoma, the Cherokee art market that's in the fall. I've done some at Angel Mounds in Evansville. There's yes. a great little museum there. You know, I've done some regional local markets too. I've, and I've, do, I've done uh, fellowships at the Smithsonian in D.C. So I, my work has um, a broad audience. Have you been to Cahokia in Missouri? Oh. Yes. Oh, yeah. Isn't that fabulous? It is. It totally is. The mounds, and that's in my culture as well, the woodland, the mounds. Oh, there's just something about being around them. And there's that's why I like to go to Angel Mounds. In southern Illinois is Dixon Mounds, and that's a fabulous place, too. It's part of the Cahokian oh, culture. I, it's right along the river up that way. I up see. North. I it's have fabulous. that one. Fabulous, yeah. The one that I particularly like is in Ohio. It's a serpent mound. Uh-huh. Have you been to that one? A very long time ago. And uh, I kind of like to seek those out when we travel. Do you have any upcoming exhibitions? Not exhibition. Um, there will be, some of my pieces will be shown in Santa Fe next summer for at the Institute of American Indian Arts. Okay. I've been there, uh, been invited to show work there, so this will be about the fourth time. Other than that, I'll be doing the um, Idol Jorg in June. That's the closest upcoming market. That'll be in June 11. It's called the Idol Jorg Museum of Indians and Western Art Indian Markets. It's the whole name of the museum. It's in Indianapolis. It is all always the weekend after Father's Day in June, Saturday and Sunday. I have pieces in many private collections. There's a piece right here in the Brown County Library of mine. Well, you're a treasure in our county, and oh, I'm so you. glad to have found you. That's great. Thank, <laughs> thank you, you so for much. coming thank in you. today. Would you like to give our listeners your website if you have one? I'm doing that right now. But they could um, email at skyloom, that's one word, S-K-Y-L-O-O-M, at Kiva, K-I-V-A, dot net. Earth Day is also about animals. Let's check in with the Brown County Humane Society. Hi, I'm Patty Peeker with the Brown County Hour. I'm here with Rebecca Robertson, president of the Brown County Humane Society. Rebecca, could you tell us a little bit about the Humane Society? Absolutely, Patty. Um, the Humane Society in Brown County has been in existence since 1966. At that time, it was recognized that we had stray animals that needed stewardship of humans to take care of them. Forty years later, we're still taking care of those animals, and our staff and volunteers work very hard to place every adoptable pet that comes through our door. In 2010, we're proud to say we ended the year at a 96% out-alive rate, which is phenomenal, considering that our shelter has historically taken in close to four times the national average of homeless pets. That's pretty impressive. How does this stack up against other shelters? That's a great question. Actually, between 6 and 8 million animals enter U.S. shelters every year, and approximately 50% of those are euthanized. Our out-alive rate is much higher than that of most rural counties in Indiana, even though our incoming animals far 
far exceeds our neighboring counties per capita. How is the Brown County Humane Society able to achieve this significant out-of-life rate? It's taken a lot of dedication and hard work, and we didn't always have this sort of success. Not so many years ago, we struggled to get ourselves above the 50% out-of-life rate. Over the past decade, we've implemented several programs which have impacted the rate. Among those, um, we implemented a policy by which every animal who enters the shelter doesn't leave without being spayed or neutered. We also have an impressive foster program. People are often surprised to learn that 25% of all animals that enter a shelter are pure breeds. So we've partnered with pure breed rescues. We also began a partnership with Petco in Bloomington to offer a permanent offsite adoption program for cat. We've placed 280 cats through that program. And just recently, we've expanded that program. We also participate in an exciting program called the Canine Express Transport Project. And this is a project where 13 shelters in Indiana transport animals to 17 shelters in New England and Northeast Ohio to eager adopters. These are animals that when they leave our shelter, they are going to a home, which is exciting. One thing that's phenomenal, I think, about our program, and especially being in such a small community, is that almost everything we do is accomplished by volunteers. In 2010, our volunteers contributed 15,000 volunteer hours to the animals in one way or another. Considering we have 15,000 people in the county, this equates to one hour of volunteering for each person who lives in Brown County. In 2010, with generous funding from a private citizen, we implemented an aggressive, low-cost, spay-neuter public assistance program called SPOT. SPOT stands for Serving Pets Outreach Team. This actually resulted in a 23% decrease in pets entering the shelter. And we say this program's proactive because it's aggressive. We're no longer waiting for pets to come to the shelter. We're actually in the field looking for pets have not been spayed or neutered. One female unaltered cat will easily multiply into 15 to 18 more cats in that one year. That's where SPOT comes in. We're out there asking the questions, finding the animals, and trying to get them fixed before they multiply. Rebecca, I understand the spay-neuter program special you had in February was so successful that you're repeating it in the month of April. Actually, it was very successful in, in April for the first 100 dogs and first 100 cats that are brought in to be spayed and neutered from the public. They will only be charged $1. Who would I contact to get in touch with the SPOT program or to get more information about the Brown County Humane Society? Brown County residents can reach the SPOT program any day of the week at 703-0797 or the Humane Society at 988-7362. You can also look us up on our website, which is www.bchumane.org or find us on Facebook. We're always looking for volunteers and regardless of what your talent is, we can figure out a way to use it. We have a couple of events coming up in May. We have our dog walk that will take place on May 15th out at Deer Run Park. Earlier in May, we'll be participating with the spot van in the Spring Blossom Parade. Here's Gunther Flum's slant on Earth Day. On Earth Day, I have seen the news presenting different kinds of views that many people in their fear cannot swallow or adhere. But I don't mean from heads of states, but what folks serve upon their plates. For cooking channels plow each street to find exotic things they eat around the world of any kind, of creatures we won't eat or find in Brown County from our wood that we ain't dined on if we could. Take rattlesnakes out in the West. The cowpokes claim are very best when roasted on an open fire before their bite makes you expire. Or octopus that's hard to chew from elephants to kangaroo. There ain't no critter we won't try to bake and batter, slice, or fry. Like take the famous puffer fish that artists slice upon a dish. When eaten fresh and cut just right, you might dine on or die tonight. Then there's piranha in the jungle whose preparation do not bungle for one mistake, don't get it right. 
They'll call you lefty by tonight. Or any time you try to peel any size electric eel, after their initial shock, your head is on their chopping block. Or any time you must eat crow, there is something you should know. That where crows gather through the lands, you have a murder on your hands. And who among us would not laugh if served a rhino or giraffe, even if the cook was able to get the whole thing on your table, plus the time to eat it takes might give you giant stomach aches. And there are creatures, I insist, that other people can't resist, like goats and chickens, pig and cow, ducks and rabbits cooked for chow, horses, camels, dogs and cats, frogs and snails, snakes and rats, and I admit them folks have style to catch and cook a crocodile. And so this Earth Day, in my view, let's honor those we cook and stew, and all the critters worldwide and cakes and fritters baked inside. Let's pay them tribute who've been cursed, that we discovered fire first. For on this Earth Day, think the fuss, if there were critters cooking us. Here are the Hutchisons again, with something positive to keep in mind. The song comes from the writings of Julian of Norwich, who was a medieval mystic, was living at a time that resembles more and more the time that we are living in. It was a time of plague and wars and great suffering and starvation. And she had a series of visions of the holy, of the divine, of what lies beyond what we normally see. She wrote a number of things about it, but the thing that remains with me is the idea that all will be well eventually, that all of the suffering and the chaos and the struggle is held in something greater, and in that something greater will be that wellness, that eventual yeah. wellness. It has great, great significance well. for those of us who grieve for what we're doing and have been doing for a long time to our mother, the earth, to know that healing power that is within the earth remains and also remains within us to awaken to and to apply to what can sometimes seem pretty overwhelming situation. river runs beneath our feet living water clear and deep in deserts hidden streams will keep the tree of life alive Sand down our roots into the flow And drinking deep of dreams we'll know Though deserts be the way we go We surely will survive
We're single threads in a tapestry. The picture's much too big to see. We must trust that all we're meant to be is woven deep as bone. The patterns made of all we choose. Sometimes we win, sometimes we lose. But in the end, we can't refuse the love that calls us home. All will be well. All will be well. All manner of thing will be. Nothing will be well. All will be well. All will be well. All manner of thing will be well. All will be well. All will be well. All manner of thing. reconnect with those words you can go to our website <laughs> www.heartsounds-music.com The Brown County Hour is a production of WFHB Community Radio Executive Producer Chad Carruthers Managing Producer Pam Rader Technical Producer and Webmaster Jeff Foster Correspondents include Pam Rader, Susan Showalter Rick Fettig Vera Grubbs, Janice Pierce, Patty Peeker, Julia Pearson, and Kaylee Witt. Poetry by Deborah Hutchison and Gunther Flum. And a slap on the back to our friend Slats Klug for his musical contributions. I'm your host, Keith Kelly. Thanks for listening, and tune in on June 18, 2011, for Episode 6 of the Brown County Hour. You've been listening to the Brown County Hour. Coming to you from deep in the woods of Brown County, Indiana. Celebrating the arts, culture, and nature that make this such a unique community. Visit us online at browncountyhour.com. The Brown County Hour is a production of WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported community radio for South Central Indiana. Take me back, back to my home. Brown County home.